Hi, this is Randy Powell. You may remember me as Alan Beam on Dallas. You're listening to the Dallas 40th Anniversary Celebration here on Hollywood and Beyond with host Stephen Burningham. Enjoy the show. on Ryland? Nothing. And that's not why I called you. Now you gotta be smarter than that. Because next time it might be an enemy instead of me on the other side of that lens. Why the hell are you tailing me? Your father asked me to keep an eye on you. Keep you on the right path. Your father was a great man. He did great things. But the way he ran around on your mother was a sin. And he figured that out too late. Grow into your father's greatness. Not his weakness. Hi, friends and listeners. Welcome to Hollywood and Beyond. It is wonderful to have you listening today. Thank you so much. In addition, welcome to the 40th anniversary celebration of Dallas. 40 years. That is a special number, my friends. My guest today portrayed J.R. Ewing's right-hand man on TNT's Dallas, but his connection to Big D actually goes back to the years the show aired over on CBS. Not one, not two, but three different characters he appeared as on Dallas prior to his role as Bum over on TNT's Dallas as well as the Dallas movie, J.R. Returns. A strong connection to the show, no doubt about it. A veteran actor in film and television. My guest today is Kevin Page, and he has experienced many amazing moments as an actor. And this would include such shows as Walker, Texas Ranger, and Seinfeld, In the Heat of the Night, Hunter, a lot of uh, high-profile shows, no doubt about it. In fact, his death scene in 1987's RoboCop almost received an X rating due to excessive violence. He also gave a riveting performance in The Alamo, co-starring Dennis Quaid and Billy Bob Thornton. He happens to be an author and also a psychologist with an emphasis on meditation and unique approaches to the craft of acting. Well, I am looking forward to speaking with uh, Kevin today. We will discuss this and his experience as Bum, the man who would eventually shoot and kill J.R. Ewing. Kevin Page, welcome to the show, sir. Thanks for having me, Stephen. I really appreciate it. You are most welcome. It's a pleasure and honor to have you here today. Uh, how have you been doing lately, by chance? You know, I've been doing uh, just great. 
I'm trying to keep busy in several different uh, areas that you just mentioned in your in your in your very gracious uh, introduction. So I've got uh, a couple of books that I'm actually writing simultaneously and uh, auditioning for some TV series again. Uh, I am going to appear this summer on a on a cable series that I can't uh, mention because of non-disclosure agreements until after it airs, but that's coming out. So, so I'm trying to keep out of trouble. <laughs> well, it sounds like a lot of exciting projects, and I want to wish you the best on those. Uh, speaking of these books, I was, I've been very intrigued, uh, subject matter of the books, and I thought, if you don't mind, if you could uh, share with the listeners out there what uh, some of your books are about, all about, basically. Sure. So um, a number of years ago, uh, I got interested in psychology, and so I went back to graduate school. Uh, my first sort of round of, of college and graduate school was in acting, and so I went back and started to study psychology, and I became particularly interested in a field uh, that's called mindfulness meditation. It's something that's become more popular in the last few years, and it's uh, basically uh, you know, training your mind to calm down and pay attention to the present moment and sort of uh, you know, be here now. And uh, what was interesting, uh, one of the things I found interesting about that was when I had been in graduate school many years before for actor training, uh, a lot of the focus of actor training was also about helping actors uh, focus their attention and sort of of, uh, perform in the present moment as opposed to being distracted and and all these other things. And so I found some similarities between uh, meditation training or mindfulness uh, and uh, actor training. So uh, I managed to write a book proposal, and I got it accepted by a fairly large publisher called Rutledge Press, and they do a lot of books for actors and actor, actor training. First one is called Advanced Consciousness Training for Actors, uh, and the acronym, of course, is ACT or ACT, uh, and that is really uh, sort of a course in meditation for people who are, you know, in training as actors and want to improve their actor craft by learning to meditate. Uh, the second one is called Psychology for Actors, and that uh, sort of takes uh, advantage of the other part of my master's degree. And I, I wrote a book on using different psychologies to uh, build characters for actors as well. So they're, they're technically pretty, you know, pretty much actor books. So I've also written a, a, a more popular book for actors called 150% Better Auditions Using Mindfulness Practice to Improve Your Acting. And this is a uh, slightly less academic book, uh, more aimed at uh, you know, actors that are students or are, are professionals, but they want to improve their ability to focus their attention and their concentration. And so it's got a whole bunch of different exercises in it you can try, and that one's available on Amazon.com uh, even as we speak. So if anybody out there is actors and they're interested in improving their acting, you can just go to Amazon.com and search for 150% Better Auditions and read my book, please. Thank you for that description, Kevin. Sounds absolutely uh, fascinating and very interesting. 
Uh, I know that there are a lot of um, actors who actually listen to this show that work in the industry, so I'm sure many of them out there will be very uh, intrigued and interested to to check out uh, some of your books. Um, I know that I am, because I have a background in acting, and I cannot wait to uh, read what um, uh, you have just described so well. It sounds like you have an emphasis on focus, which is so important for an actor. Yes, and you know what, uh, part of my thesis here is that, uh, you know, actors have to really be able to direct and focus their attention when they're acting because, you know, distraction is, is not good for the actor. But I also feel like uh, any CEO or business executive or anybody really making a public presentation that requires uh, charisma and, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, like a business, uh, a business presentation. That's really the same kind of thing that an actor is doing when they're on the stage or in front of a camera. And so the sorts of techniques that I'm writing about, I think, are actually applicable to a broader uh, group of people than just actors, basically. It sounds like it. It can um, incorporate all uh, different types of uh, of, uh, uh, of work life or or people working on projects. So thank you for sharing all of that. I cannot wait to check some of them out. And I wish you the best success on all of that. Thanks. I thought I would ask you, Kevin, um, I'm very uh, interested, and I'm sure that some of the listeners that maybe aren't aware, where you are from, and how did your interest in acting first start? Ah, Well, I grew up in the Midwest, and I believe when I was in third grade, uh, there was a, uh, a community theater production of Alice in Wonderland, and it was held at a place called the Pinewood Bowl. So it was a large outside amphitheater, seated about 10,000 people. And I was cast in the role of Tweedledee. And so my first experience uh, was, you know, on the stage as a kid. And uh, uh, I got to work... Uh, with some really, they actually had some very qualified directors come in from from professional theaters, and so I, I had a really positive experience with that. And so uh, later on in my life, when I got uh, to about college age, I was trying to sort of figure out what I wanted to do, as most as many teenagers and early adults do. And uh, I I believe I literally stumbled into uh, an acting class on the campus uh, at, at the university where I was to study, and I had not realized you could actually study acting in college. And so I said, well, that sounds, that sounds pretty good. So I started to take a few classes and got enrolled and, uh, and ended up getting a bachelor's degree in theater and a scholarship to SMU uh, down in Dallas, Texas. And so uh, I went to uh, SMU for graduate school uh, in actor training, and I spent about a year doing that. And uh, it was really interesting training, and it was very intense, and it was sort of a conservatory approach. So we had, you know, classes in voice and speech and diction and movement and stage combat and acting practice and all this other stuff. Uh, And... In the summer, after my first year of this two-year program, uh, I went out and I got an agent to represent me for, you know, commercials and things like that in the local area, and she got me an audition for this little film called RoboCop, and uh, I got uh, cast in a small 
part that happened at the beginning of the movie, uh, but the production schedule got pushed. Uh, you know, it got behind schedule, and they kept saying, well, we're, we're going to shoot this in July. No, we're going to shoot this in early August. No, we're going to shoot it in later August. And it finally got into the school year. So I had to call my advisor at, uh, at the university and say, look, I may have to take a day or two off from, from graduate training to go do this movie. I got cast in her. I didn't know, you know, I didn't know I was going to have this conflict, but I do now. And she said to me something along the effects of, well, at some point you must learn to choose between the theater and this film thing, uh, <laughs> and denied my request. Oh, and wow. so, so, uh, I thought about that pretty hard for several days and ended up dropping out of graduate school uh, and taking that uh, small part in RoboCop. And so I like to say that I got my MFA in acting from RoboCop instead of, instead of the university. <laughs> yes, I could, I could see why. Wow, and what an experience RoboCop would become for you um, for, for many reasons. Uh, you were in uh, uh, quite the scene, uh, and I thought that maybe if you wouldn't mind uh, just describing the scene to those listening that uh, maybe aren't aware of, of this uh, uh, definitely memorable scene. Sure. So um, at the beginning of the movie RoboCop, they are in this boardroom, and they introduce this giant uh, a uh, police robot that has machine guns for arms, uh, big machine guns, and uh, and there's this uh, sort of uh, enthusiastic young executive named Mr. Kinney, which is is the character that I play, and they they're going to run a demonstration of how the robot would operate as a police officer, and so uh, they have me point a gun at this giant robot, and the robot responds by saying, "Throw down your weapon. You have 20 seconds to comply," uh, and so. You know, all the board members are sitting there looking at what's going on, and, and Mr. Kinney throws down the weapon, and the robot doesn't hear the gun drop. So the robot keeps going, and they can't stop it. And so the robot essentially blows poor Mr. Kinney into about a million pieces. And the yes. shooting sequence goes on for like 15 seconds. Wow. Uh, and it was the director's intention uh, to over-exaggerate the violence to kind of make a... a a social commentary on how movies were back in the 1980s. Uh, and he did such a good job in creating this sort of uh, parody or, or commentary on it that the movie itself became uh, sort of the benchmark for violence in movies. <laughs> and in part, in part because of the Mr. Kinney scene. And I've even heard it said that uh, the creators of South Park the uh, the uh, ca uh, cartoon TV show of of rather sharp humor uh, named a character in their show uh, Kenny uh, after my character in RoboCop because every week on South Park uh, poor Kenny gets killed in extraordinarily violent ways and that was apparently their uh, uh, their homage to the character that I played in RoboCop. And I'll tell you what, when the, uh, the, like you said, the robot was giving a countdown to, to have your character drop his weapon, and, and he didn't hear it. But when the robot suddenly goes, you have five seconds, <laughs> you know, when he went from a higher number to that low number, the, the look on your character's face was like, oh my goodness, we have a malfunction going on here. <laughs> Well, if anybody is interested in seeing that clip, I have that and a number of the other uh, uh, clips of my work over the years on my website, www.kevinpage.com. So come in and check out uh, all of the goodies I have there if you get a chance. 
it's a fantastic website. So I definitely encourage uh, the listeners to check that out, and they can check that scene out, like you mentioned as well. And you know, Kevin, um, when I was uh, researching uh, for the interview today, I came across an additional fact of that scene that I was not previously aware of. And that is you uh, experienced uh, quite a bit of discomfort um, <laughs> dur- during the, 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 the moments when your character is really getting it. And I wanted to know if you wouldn't mind um, uh, uh, sharing that with us. Sure. So uh, when you get shot in the movies, uh, they, use these, uh, they use these things called squibs uh, to make the, uh, special effect of, of being shot and blood splurting out and all this other stuff. It's not actually realistic, uh, because when you get hit in the chest by a bullet, you don't necessarily squirt blood out forward, but that's, that's how the special effects work. So, uh, these squibs are basically like firecrackers, like a black cat firecracker, but they're, uh, they're on the equivalent of a half dollar or a quarter. So they're, they're like uh, one-way uh, charges. They're sort of flat, but when they explode, they explode out. And the back of the, the, back of the squib is like you know, a little piece of metal that, protect, that basically protects you. But it's still like the explosion of a firecracker. So, for instance, if you get sh- you know, squibbed in the chest and this explosion goes off, uh, the firecracker goes off, and usually they have condoms filled with fake blood that they sew into your clothes, so it looks like you get hit and it splurts blood out. But if you accidentally get your arm, for instance, in front of that, it's like a one-way firecracker firing into your arm, and you can get burns and, and, and the like. And so when they squibbed me for that scene in RoboCop, they used an excessive amount, <laughs> an excessive amount of these little firecrackers, something like uh, 50 to 80 at a time. And we did, had to go through this several times. And so uh, basically I got several burns all, you know, in different places on my body, and, and if those uh, things get you know, too far away from you in your clothes, they kind of kick back. And so it can actually be like getting punched a little bit. So I got, I got punched by these firecrackers in several places, mm. uh, some of which were very sensitive and, uh, and caused me to call out. So it's uh, not something I recommend uh, to try at home. Don't, don't try getting squibbed at home. You wanna, if you're going to have to do that, you want to do that with professionals. And if you're smart... Uh, you want to get a stuntman to do it instead of you. But see, I was very young at the time, and I was not smart enough to say no. So <laughs> You were so doing I, your own stunts there. So <laughs> I was doing my own stunts through the whole thing. Yeah, there was no, no stuntman in that sequence at all, but, but poor young Kevin Page. Yes, and you didn't uh, cry out until after the director had yelled cut. Is that correct? Well, you know, when you're, uh, when you're uh, working on a movie set or a TV set, you're, you have to stay in character. Uh, until the director calls cut, because you never know when they're going to, you know, edit the scene out and go to another shot. And so, uh, at the, in that particular case, my character was dead, <laughs> so I had to continue being dead <laughs> yes. until the director called cut. So, you know, that's that's the story. Well, well done there, and and you got to work um, with uh, Ronnie Cox in the film. And I wanted to ask you what that experience was like. Uh, you know, uh, Ronnie Cox was in that film, and uh, Miguel Ferrar, who recently passed away, uh, R.I.P., yes. uh, was in that film. And these guys were uh, uh, very professional, and since it was my first speaking role in a film, uh, I got to kind of hang out with them and really learn uh, how to behave on a film set, 
you know you're, you there's a certain certain set of of rules basically that uh, that are involved in a film set and so i really got a chance to learn from both of those guys you know how to behave and how to listen carefully to the director and you know go where you need to be and keep your mouth shut when you don't need to be talking and and all of those sort of things so i really i thought both ronnie and uh, and miguel were were true professionals and and really taught me a lot both amazing um, individuals and actors, no doubt about it. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll tell you what, um, you have had quite the experience on television, as I described in the um, opening segments of the uh, episode today. And I thought I would ask you just about a few of them, if you don't mind. And one would be sure. in the heat of the night, because ah, obviously yeah. there is a, um, a a man on that show that has quite the uh, impressive career, Carol O'Connor. And I, I did see a clip of you um, on that show and thought you did a great job, as you usually do. So what was that experience like when you look back? Uh, well, at the time I was living in Los Angeles and I got cast to be in that show. And so I actually uh, traveled from L.A. to uh, Georgia, where they were filming on location. And uh, what's sort of interesting about that is uh, Georgia, and particularly the Atlanta area, has now become the most popular destination for filming movies and TV uh, shows uh, in the world. And so uh, uh, I actually have an agent now in Atlanta and, and worked on there some, but that was my first show in Atlanta, Georgia, and I got a chance to work with the, the legendary Carol O'Connor, who probably became, you know, famous for Archie Bunker on uh, on All in the Family, which was a cutting edge television show in the 1960s, early 1970s, and uh, he did one thing. He did something that very rarely had been done at that time. He became very famous as Archie Bunker. Uh, and then he was able to transition a few years later to become very famous again as the police chief in 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 the heat of the night on a series that ran for many years. Uh, and it and it was very uncommon at that time that once you got very famous for something, you were sort of typecast, and very rarely could go back and and get another major hit basically. And Carol O'Connor was such a, a fine actor that he was able to do that. And he went from a comedy to a very serious drama where he played a completely different character with a, with a southern accent. Now, what's so interesting to me about that is uh, I had an opportunity to work with another actor uh, many, many years later, a guy named Larry Hagman, who most of your, your listeners will probably know who that is. And he had become very famous in the 1960s for a, a comedy character on a show called I Dream of Jeannie. And then he did the same thing that Carol O'Connor did several years later. He got cast in a show called Dallas. And uh, originally, when he was uh, when he was cast, it was the Dallas was like a miniseries. It was only six or seven episodes long, and he was supposed to be sort of a side character. But Larry, being you know who he was and as talented as he was, he kept stealing all the scenes. So by the time they got to the second season, he became the main character instead of just a side character. Uh, and he was completely different, of course, as J.R. Ewing uh, than he was as Tony. Uh, well, Tony and I, I dream of Jeannie. So that's uh, my experience with a couple of legendary actors who had made a magnificent transformation from one show uh, to another, and that was. That was my experience with Carol O'Connor. Was he was just an awesome actor, and uh, and really good to work with. 
Well said. Uh, excellent descriptions. Thank you so much. And you are so right. Larry was so good on I Dream of Genie. I mean, he showcased his comedic uh, skills and talents. And, um, you know, now you can look back and you can see a little hint and a little glimmer in his eyes of what's to come down the road as far as uh, portraying uh, uh, J.R. Ewing on Dallas. But yes, he's so good that he was able to create another iconic character. And that is just really uh, an, an amazing accomplishment for an actor. Because like you said, it's difficult when you uh, become typecasted, isn't it? It must be also very frustrating when you know you have so much more to offer. Well, show business is a tough business, as everybody's heard, and that's actually true. So uh, there's a lot more people that that are very talented that you never hear from or, or only see once or twice that don't get another shot. That's just the way the business works. Yes. Uh, but I have been honored and blessed to really have, you know, been invited to work with some really excellent actors, including, you know, Robert De Niro, and as you mentioned, Carol O'Connor and Larry Hagman, and the beautiful Linda Gray. As a matter of fact, I got to work with her quite a bit on the, on the Dallas show. Um, and so, you know, I've just been blessed to be able to recreate myself in these various characters with these other great actors over and over again. So I, I've been... In this business, I've been exceptionally lucky. And you yourself are a very talented individual. Uh, I notice when I watch any of your work, um, I become very interested in your character. Uh, I want to know more about the character. And, um, you know, that says a lot about about your skills as an actor. So I must uh, commend you for that. And speaking of Dallas, wow, you've had quite the connection to the show in huge ways, but let's go back to um, the time that uh, you appeared on the show on uh, when it aired on CBS. So back to the eighties before you know Dallas would be on TNT, of course. So you were on there several times, including in a very important scene, uh, a scene that really stands out with that dramatic music in the background. Uh, it was after Pamela Ewing's horrific car accident, and the medic helicopter has taken her to the hospital. And what a shot, Kevin. I'm sure you remember the, the, sure. the skyline of the buildings and that dramatic music. And, hey, there's you in, in the helicopter. Inspiration. We're giving her all the oxygen we can. Come on, hang in there, lady. We're almost to the hospital. She's conscious. No, we're trying to stabilize her. She's pretty busted now. So um, the reason I was on Dallas so many times in the uh, 80s and early, well, no, I guess it was mostly the 80s, very early 90s perhaps, was that the, fi- uh, the show was actually shot uh, in part on location in Dallas, Texas, uh, the namesake of the show itself. And so uh, since I had, uh, once I completed my job on RoboCop, uh, I had an agent, and so I started auditioning for local commercials, and I did a bunch of commercials, and the big show that was being shot in Texas 
happened to be in Dallas, where I was living at the time, uh, was Dallas. And so I ended up being on the series in season 10, season 11, and season 12 uh, as, as totally different characters. I think the first time I appeared, I was in a scene with uh, uh, Steve Keneally, who you just recently interviewed, and I was a waiter. And he was having uh, he was having uh, lunch or dinner or something, and I offered. I came up and said, "May I get you some more coffee?" And that I think was about the totality <laughs> of that role. Uh, and then uh, the following year uh, was the year that uh, Pam had had her car wreck, and so yes, as you described very nicely, uh, you know, we're in this helicopter scene. We're bringing the burned Pam into the emergency room. So it was a very tense, uh, uh, very tense scene, and sort of the kickoff to the to the season. 11, I believe. And then in season 12, uh, I had a nice little scene as a suit salesman uh, as selling a suit to, I think it was Dak Rambo, uh, was playing a character on the show. And so uh, I was a, a paramedic, a waiter, and uh, a suit salesman. Uh, and all of those clips, by the way, uh, are posted on YouTube on my YouTube channel, which is uh, Kevin Page. You can just if you go on YouTube, you can look up Kevin Page Video Archive, and I have a whole channel that includes uh, clips from Dallas and and Walker, Texas Ranger. I think you mentioned earlier and stuff like that. So if anybody's interested, please come and follow follow my video channel on YouTube. I'm just, I'm like an advertisement for you. <laughs> well, that's right. And, and um, I just subscribe to your channel myself. Holly, oh, Hollywood and Beyond, of course, has a YouTube channel and I just subscribe to your channel, just so you know, the other day. Awesome. Thanks. <laughs> you are most welcome. And thank you for sharing all of that. It had to be so exciting and thrilling. And like you said, hey, serving a cup of coffee on Dallas, you know what? I would take that in a heartbeat. Had to be very exciting. <laughs> It actually was. And you know what? You, you weren't finished because here come the 90s. And, and while Dallas sadly you know, eventually went off the air on CBS, because for many viewers, they did not want it to leave. And right, I don't even right. think the network really wanted it to leave. There's kind of a backstory to that. But you know what? It came back. And really no surprise when you think about it. J.R. Returns. Ah. This is a movie that I, I really enjoyed. Uh, had so many of the original cast members, and the way the series ended, Kevin, I think people really wanted to know, you know, what's going to uh, happen now with Jr. returning back to Dallas after apparently being so devastated and and, and even defeated. And um, you have a, a, a rather big moment uh, on in that production with Audrey Landers, no less. I would actually characterize it as a very small moment, Stephen, but thank you so much. Uh, yeah, so I guess uh, the storyline goes that J.R. had set up Audrey Landers uh, and had her arrested for uh, uh, some trumped-up charge that he had created, and I play the TV detective that is uh, basically hauling poor Audrey uh, off of the set, and, and I don't even think I got a close-up out of the deal. So it'd be, you'd have to be very sharp to actually uh, see and identify me, but uh, it, was, uh, it was kind of a thrill to get to work with Audrey, and of course that, uh, uh, that would have been the first time I actually got to work with Larry. He was on the set. We were on the set together, although I don't think we were, I don't think we had a scene together. I did meet him, and he was very uh, gracious and, and wonderful, as Larry always was. Well, and you know, 
Um, I've had Audrey Landers also on the show, and yep. it was a wonderful experience speaking with her. And um, so, yes, you were a part of that uh, th- that scene there. And I'm just curious, though. You know, uh, sure, actors can reappear on shows, especially if they're not quote unquote too noticeable, especially right. if they get a bigger role. But I'm just curious, as from a casting standpoint, um, surely they were aware that you had already appeared on the show three times, or did that not even seem to be an issue as far as you know giving you this opportunity it turns out they were not aware of that (laughs) (laughs) and uh in the casting instructions uh at the time they said we really don't want people that have appeared on the show too much before uh however this was uh this was a few years ago and there wasn't as much uh there wasn't as much YouTube traffic, et cetera, and uh, as as we did sort of point out, there were small parts two, two, three decades before, two, two decades before, and so uh, I don't, uh, you know, we had uh, auditions for the role of Bum, uh, and the producers were very secretive about this. They uh, actually... They actually created scripts just for the audition, and they changed all the names. So, as I recall, it was a, uh, the audition scene was a scene between uh, John Ross and this new character Bum, uh, but uh, they 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 may have changed his name, but they certainly changed Jr.'s name to something like Matt. And so you're reading the scene with uh, you know. Uh, with, uh, with the, as the character reading with uh, John Ross, and you were saying, well, you know, what is Matt going to think about this? And, and so they're really trying to keep everything uh, hush-hush and very secret. And so I was uh, lucky enough to win out uh, that role over a number of really very qualified, uh, very, very seasoned uh, Texas actors. They had a bunch of guys in from all over the state, you know, to read for this, and I was, I was just lucky enough to be the one who won. Well, they made the, the right choice because you did a, 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 an outstanding job. And, and Kevin, a, a lot of emotional scenes that you were in as well. I thought you interacted so well with um, both the uh, veteran actors on the show and the younger cast members. So I would like to ask you, before we discuss more about Larry, of course, and, and that big moment that, that you are involved with, but working with um, like Josh Henderson. John mm-hmm. Ross Ewing. So, as an actor, that young man has a big challenge in front of him. Um, you know, what was it, the experience like for you working with Josh? Uh, Josh is just great. He's a you know he's a movie star waiting to happen. He's on a new series now called The Arrangement. It's in its second season, uh, and you know, it would be hard for me to say enough enough nice things about working with Josh. Just a real pro. Uh, he was always right there and ready to go. Uh, he did have a hard job, and I thought he did it really, really well. And every time I got to work with him, we just had a blast. So you know, <laughs> hats great. off to hats off to Josh Henderson. He's he's awesome. He sure is, and he really displayed that inner turmoil, didn't he, Kevin, of of trying to be his own man, but also perhaps following in his father's footsteps. I have, would one hundred percent agree. And that's very ironic because that's exactly what Larry Hagman experienced on Dallas. You know, isn't the amazing thing about Dallas, Kevin, when you when the series first started, it's not like the you do today where they kind of say, okay, this is the beginning of everything. It's almost like stepping into the a middle of something that's going on and you're just catching up from the very beginning. The feuds are already established. Yep. I agree. And over time, it just intensifies, and just a Dallas is really just one of those magical 
you know, brilliant uh, productions in television history. And I think it's one of the reasons why people cherish it so much even today. And you got to work with the uh, legendary man himself, Larry Hagman. Um, I would like to ask you what that experience was like in general, working with him in his older years. But I would like to add to you, Kevin, you know, isn't it amazing his skill of being able to be so multidimensional. On the one hand, he can be pretty ruthless and, and tough in business and, and he and whatnot. But on the other hand, he's very emotional about his family. Yeah, so Larry was one of those special gifted stars. There's a reason he was a star, and he was a star for several decades in different roles, as we discussed earlier. And Larry just had a real, very powerful charisma, uh, he grew up basically in show business, his mother being uh, Mary Martin, I believe. And uh, so he, you know, he had a long background. Uh, I'm sure other people have mentioned this, but, uh, you know, he also off camera had a wicked sense of humor uh, and would play practical jokes on people and, and was a very, very, very funny guy just to be on the set with. He'd, he'd crack jokes, uh, but he was also very generous as an actor. Uh, you know, when you work with major stars, you uh, you have to kind of come up to their level or the editor will cut you out of the scene, right? <laughs> and so uh, Larry was, uh, you know, sometimes uh, when it's not, when the camera's not on the star, they may or may not be paying as much attention when it's, you know, the other guy's close up. But Larry was always 100% there and and giving you what you needed to do to bring your own performance up to uh, a higher level, and then when you did good, after they'd call, after the director would call cut, if he re- he'd say, you know, I really believed that, so he was very generous with his his compliments as well. And so, uh, yeah, it was uh, it was a great pleasure and an honor to get a work to get a work with Larry. I actually uh, we filmed the last scene he ever did before Thanksgiving of uh, I think it was 2013. Maybe in 2012. I think it was 2013, uh, and uh, we all went off for holiday. And uh, while I was uh, while I was at Thanksgiving, we got the terrible news that he had passed away. So it was a surprise, uh, at least to you know the cast members, uh, that he was still that sick. And uh, so yeah, that's that was Larry. Wow! Thank you for such a. A terrific description, and 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 you're right, Kevin. It was um, it was so sad. I, I remember I got the news late at night. Uh, my son had just gone to bed, and I saw I had CNN on. It, it was muted, but I saw it on you know their news ticker on the bottom, and it said Larry Hagman has passed away. And I have to tell you, I sat down, and it took me the longest time to accept it. I I just uh, couldn't imagine uh, Larry Hagman and J.R. Ewing, you know, being gone. And, um, you know, because he has definitely influenced me as an artist. All of that energy and enthusiasm, and like you just described, Kevin, his sense of fun, I think is just wonderful. And uh, did you ever get the sense that, I mean, obviously he must have been so joyful to be back portraying J.R. I could just imagine what that was like for him after several years away. Uh, well, he certainly seemed to have a good time when I worked with him. <laughs> I agree with that. Now, were you surprised that your character would be the one that, you know, because J.R. Ewing has taken many bullets in the past. And uh, were you surprised that though your character would be the one pulling the trigger that would ultimately kill J.R. Ewing? 
Yeah, so spoiler alert. Uh, yeah, uh, the way that happened actually was uh, Larry passed away unexpectedly in the middle of the second season. And so they shut production down for something like two months while they had to rewrite the entire you know, the entire story for that season, because we were only about halfway through filming the second season when Larry passed. And so they rewrote the entire storyline, uh, and they went through all of the footage that they, have sh- that they had shot of Larry so far and, and, and sort of curated out all the pieces they hadn't used yet and used that to build the story around uh, and they were, as I said, the producers were very secretive because they didn't want to let their surprises out, and that's understandable, so we, everybody had to be very hush-hush. Uh, and the way that turned out was uh, they called me into the set one evening, and this was back after we were already filming again, and no one knew at the time what was going on. We'd just get the script the week we were to shoot it, and we would shoot the script, and, and we were not informed. I think maybe Linda and and Patrick probably were, but I wasn't anyway. And so they called me into the set one evening, uh, and they said, look, we want to do this little pickup shot. Uh, and it's a phone conversation between you and, and, uh, JR. And the director turns to me and says, did, have they told you yet what happens with your character? And I said, well, no, they haven't. And he said, okay, come here. And very quietly, we walk all the way over to the trailers, and we go into my, my dressing room, and he closes the door, and he says, uh, it was decided that your character will shoot uh, and kill J.R., and that's, so that's why we're doing this scene. Uh, it, was for, it was for an episode you know, several, several weeks earlier that we'd filmed, but they wanted to include that little conversation where Bum says something like, I'll see you soon, as a little clue for you know the fans and the and the and the, and the audience later on, uh, and so I had to. I really didn't tell anybody but my wife. Uh, we didn't tell any family members. We didn't really tell any friends. We didn't tell anybody, uh, and we kept that secret until the episodes actually aired. Something like you know nine months after we had we had filmed all that. But no, I did not know, and I was told on the set and only told because I had to know what was going on in order to get that line right. Wow, that's, that's just amazing. Yeah. Um, thank you for sharing all of that. I've really enjoyed listening to your memories of your time on Dallas and, and, and these final uh, scenes with Larry Hagman. And, you know, uh, uh, Larry being the professional that he was, I'm sure that he tried to keep um, his health uh, situation probably as personal and private as possible. Uh, during filming, is that the impression that you uh, got? Well, yeah, he was. Uh, I mean, he had had cancer, and he had a recurrence while we were filming. So he literally had a, a personal doctor with him, uh, pretty much all the time. Was sort of a doctor and a, and a personal assistant as well, uh, trying to you know keep him as healthy uh, as they could. But again, like I said, uh, he died four days after we finished that last shot. Uh, and I had no idea. I mean, you know, you could tell he was thin uh, and all, but, uh, you know, I had no idea he was really that sick again. It was, it was a total shock to me. I'm sure it was. And, and you know, um, as the viewers know, they, they were aware of his health issues. But I think that many viewers, and, and I have to say, including myself, we just kind of thought that Larry was going to get through this. Because, after all, J.R. Ewing usually gets through just about anything. And... Um, so it was, uh, it was still shocking for, 
for so many when he did pass away. Right. Uh, and, uh, when you think of, of what makes Dallas special, Kevin, I mean, you, you've been a part of it in many ways. Why do you think that um, it just remains so cherished today? Well, I think it's probably just the uh, you know the fans connected with those characters, and and at the time it was one of the longest running, prime, it was the longest running primetime soap opera I think in the in the seventies and eighties when it first came out, and so I think that uh, people got attached to those characters, and uh, they stayed attached to them, and sort of uh, you know the the brilliance of of the TNT reboot was uh, that's the first time in TV history that I'm aware of that they brought a TV, a major TV show back from cancellation and continued it instead of rebooting it. So instead of just starting over with a younger cast and saying this is the new Dallas, uh, the TNT version was literally a continuation as if the story picked up just 20 years after it had gone off the air and everything was still going on the same as it had been. Uh, and now the viewers were just tuning into that. So I think that's what captured the imagination of so many fans when the TNT reboot came out was it was like picking up a show that was, that was dear to their hearts you know, 20 years before, yes. uh, and that had never been done on TV. It, it certainly was amazing, wasn't it? I have to tell you, Kevin, I was literally jumping up and down when I heard that Dallas was returning on TNT. Uh, it, it, you know, it just made me want to celebrate. I was just that excited. Well, it turns out I was, too. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew? And, and this time you weren't just in a helicopter or, or bringing somebody coffee. You were exactly. a part of, really, Dallas history. There's just no yep. other way you can describe it. Um, and I want to thank you for sharing all of these uh, wonderful memories and stories and, and, and your journey as, a, as an actor. I, I did want to ask real quick before we conclude here that uh, you are also an artist, not just as an actor, but and I just thought I would ask you uh, all about that real quick. Well, um, how do I make a long story short? Uh, essentially, several years ago, I was approached by a scientist that had created a robot that could uh, uh, place little tiny dots of oil paint uh, using uh, basically robotics and artificial intelligence, uh, like as in pointillist paintings. If you're familiar with pointillism, uh, Georges Seurat was the French guy who came up with this idea in the 1800s, painting with thousands of little dots. And this guy had come up with a robot that could actually do that, sort of like a paintbrush, but it was a, a, a robotic paintbrush that the artist would then, you know, run to create uh, pointillist oil paintings that could get up to like eight foot by six feet tall. So they're huge. Uh, and so uh, I ended up uh, working with this guy and we worked on the software and the design and figured out how to really uh, get the technology to work uh, amazingly. Uh, and uh, so I hold four U.S. patents on the technology uh, for this robot that, uh, you know, is like a, a ro- uh, is like a robotic paintbrush for pointillist uh, painting. So I've, I've made several, uh, a couple of hundred paintings, I guess, at this point. And wow. I had a gallery for a while, and I've been, you know, my art's shown all over this, uh, sort of the Southwest and at different times. Now, right now, I'm mostly concentrating on, on writing my books. And, uh, you know, like I said, I've got a number of, of TV projects and film projects that are sort of on the horizon. I just did a, a short film for a festival uh, with uh, Walter Koenig, 
who was uh, obviously uh, Chekhov on the original Star Trek. So I had the honor to work with yet another uh, old and seasoned actor just a few weeks ago, um, and uh, that was a lot of fun. So look for that at the Louisiana Film Prize uh, later in the year. Hopefully, uh, hopefully that short film will uh, maybe take home the prize. We'll, we'll find out. But Walter, <laughs> Walter uh, Koenig was also just a, a great guy to work with. Um, again, all of these details are available on my website, www.kevinpage.com. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram, uh, at Kevin W. Page. And I have pages on both of those systems, at Kevin W. Page. Don't forget the W. Uh, and so, uh, as the as the shows uh, you know are released and the films come out, I'll have announcements there and and stuff about my books. So I welcome any fans or any actors, particularly, to come and uh, come and see what's going on. Sounds uh, wonderful. And 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 Kevin, uh, thank you for making the uh, 40th anniversary celebration of Dallas on Hollywood and Beyond extra extra special. Well, thank you, Stephen, and thanks for uh, being so diligent in in documenting this uh, this sort of amazing series of events that's gone on now for three or four decades. I really appreciate what you do. Well, you are most welcome, and I would also like to thank the listeners out there uh, for all of the wonderful feedback and uh, and support that I've received during the um, 40th anniversary celebration on my show. I really appreciate it, and of course. Uh, it wouldn't be possible without such wonderful guests like today. Uh, such an uh, honor and so much fun uh, speaking with Kevin Page today. Well, I will see all of you on another episode of Hollywood and Beyond. Thank you. Tell me what you know, John Rowe. Christopher won the damn race. And don't bother with a lecture because there's nothing you could tell me that I haven't already told myself. But there is a play to be made with the woman at the DCT. We can fix this. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Well, don't you worry, son. I've got a plan. It's going to be my masterpiece. Because you shouldn't have to pay for my sins. What do you mean? Just remember, I'm proud of you. You're my son. From tip to tail. Thank you, Daddy. That means a whole lot for me to hear you say that. JR. Hello? Dad! Dad! Dad?